I have a trivia contest or a trivia question for you as we start. Um, whose picture is on the $20 bill? I know you see that a lot. You guys got lots of $20 bills. Who is that guy? It is your seventh U.S. president, Andrew Jackson. I know. He's kind of a scary-looking guy, really. Um, And the word is out that eventually the $20 bill will be remade, and Andrew Jackson's face will be removed, and Harriet Tubman's face will be put on. That's in the works. I don't know when that's going to happen. It's kind of funny, though, because even though Andrew Jackson hated paper money, he was a gold man. He, and Silverman, he hated paper money. Uh, long after he was gone, they decided to put his face on that $20 bill in 1928, and it's been there ever since. He, I don't know, remember your history? He was called Old Hickory by his uh, soldiers who revered him as uh, he led them in battle. But here's the shocking truth. Um, I don't know, you guys know I like to read. I'm reading, as President Andrew Jackson, he established a policy that is shocking in our day and age. It's just absolutely shocking. It was a policy called Indian Removal. I'm not talking about changing the name of the Cleveland Indians. I'm not talking about that kind of Indian removal, although that also is revolting. Very, very simple. Here, very simply, here's how it went down when Andrew Jackson finally became president. Any Native American that remained on his ancestral lands and maintained his identity, saying that he was a Native American, uh, would be considered a criminal. They would be removed from their land and moved west. And resistance to this policy meant death. That was the policy of the United States of America during his presidency. And this led this policy led to a a very dark time called the Trail of Tears, dark time for the Indians. The Trail of Tears, of course, is when Native Americans cried as they left their homes and were forced west to First Oklahoma and then beyond. History repeats itself. Last week, the owner of the Golden State Warriors basketball team was one of the minority owners of the basketball team, was asked about the oppressed Uyghur people, a minority people in China that are being persecuted by the government there. He's a wealthy man, very professional man, very smart man, uh, capitalist, a venture capitalist, they call him. He said, I'm just telling you the very hard, ugly truth. Of all the things I care about, those people in China are below my line. I care about the fact that our economy could turn on a dime if China invades Taiwan. I care about climate change. 
I care about America's crippling and decrepit health care infrastructure, but if you ask me, do I care about a segment of a class of people in another country? I quote, not until we can take care of ourselves will I prioritize them over us. I've listened to that a couple times and uh, thought, you know, he might be talking about his feelings as an owner of a NBA franchise, but it sounds like sometimes those words could come from God's own people. Why should I care about anybody else? Do we care? Why should we care? How can we raise up people that care about other people? So let me just put it in reverse for a second and ask you, do you remember uh, the people that talked to you about the Lord helped you understand Him, and nurtured you along so that you could actually put your faith in Him. Each one of us has a different story. Some of the people are in the room today, and many of them are long gone to their reward in heaven. Uh, Who were the people that brought you to the Lord? Man, how blessed we are that somebody did that for us. Where, Where did those people come from? How did they learn about the Lord that they could pass it on to us. Each of us has this spiritual family tree that leads all the way back to the cross. I'm glad for the people in my life that cared enough about me to tell me the good news and actually had to tell me several times to get it through my thick skull and my hard heart that I could be included, that I could be forgiven. So today I want to read a chunk of Scripture for you comes from Acts chapter 14. It's about the faith journey of a guy named Timothy. How did he get to where he got? How, how did that happen? So here's the story. It starts in Acts chapter 14. I'm starting in verse 8. You can read along with me behind me or open up your phone or however you'd like to do that. I would encourage you to, to read along. <laughs> Acts 14, starting with verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. Love to have been there. Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian Language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Verse 14, but when the apostles, Paul and, uh, Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out in the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Verse 19, Then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. 
But after the disciples gathered around him, he got got up, went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. Verse 21. They preached the good news, I'm sorry, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. Okay, after this, Paul leaves. He goes to Jerusalem. He has a conference there with the leaders. It's been a little while. Now he returns back. I'm skipping out of chapter 16. And here's what happened. They return. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra in Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, there's a story. Let's talk about that for a minute. The, I love stories. The, the job of the church is to make Christ known. That's it. It's to raise up workers from among our ranks who will go out into the harvest field and make Christ known. Kingdom workers who make Christ known because of their obedience to Christ and their compassion for people. That's how Christ was. That's how we are. And so the question comes for our church and for every church, how are we doing? Are we raising up kingdom workers? Are we like the church in Lystra? The link is pretty clear in Timothy's case. You just kind of follow along there. Paul and Barnabas brought the news of Christ to town originally. In another place in the letters to Timothy, we read that his grandma and his mom taught him the scriptures when he was uh, just a little boy. And then we read just now that the church in Lystra had an influence on Timothy too. They were the ones who encouraged him. They recommended him for service. I don't know about you guys, but I would really wonder if I would go with this wild man Paul anywhere. Uh, I just saw what happened to him. You're going to travel with that dangerous guy? Mommies and daddies in the group, would you send your son with a guy like that? Uh, Paul was attacked and left for dead in Timothy's hometown. And it would only be right for Timothy's mom and Timothy himself to say, okay, you want me to go with you. Where are we going? Where are we going to go? Um... What are my hours going to be? What is what is the pay for this? What do I get out of this? And, oh yes, you want me... I know guys didn't miss this little part of the story. You want me to have a medical operation before I go with you on this journey? Where exactly is that medical operation on my body? Are you kidding me? Uh, Paul saying... Uh, you don't want to know any of that. Just, I'm just asking you, will you go? Will you, yeah, there's a price. Will you go with me? I think that Paul talking Timothy into going with him to the great unknown was one of the greatest recruiting jobs in history. 
I mean, think about that. And his mom is listening in. And his grandma. Will you go with this man? Pretty crazy stuff. Uh, where do kingdom workers come from? There's a common link. They come from local churches. That's where they come from. And the people that led you to Christ, whoever they were, probably had their roots and their spiritual link in some little church somewhere back down the way. Dr. E, Dr. Valerie Colby is a friend of mine. She's an optometrist, uh, not in the U.S. As a little girl, she grew up dreaming of being a missionary doctor. She went to church camp, learned about it, wanted to be like that guy that was speaking. Someday I want to do that. She was nurtured by her parents in a local church outside of Indianapolis, Indiana. All she wanted to do was go to school, learn to be a doctor. So she went to Indiana University. And for over 20 years now, she's been running His Eyes Medical Clinic in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. It's an amazing story. I hope someday you can go there. She's a hero. There's a little town in Kansas called Tyro. Tyro, Kansas. It has a population of 220 people. One of those 220 was a guy named Roger Twitchell. He grew up there in a local church. uh, Went off to college with the idea that God wanted to use him somehow. He wasn't sure how. At the college, he met some people. They shaped him and sharpened him further. And sure enough, he teamed up with some of the people from that college to go plant churches first in Honduras and then in Costa Rica. And now Roger runs this organization that provides a safe place for kids who have suffered from sexual trafficking. They've been rescued and they need a safe place. And Roger runs this outfit. Roger once told me that there were ten times more cows in Tyro, Kansas than people. Yeah. And he said, I'm underestimating that. But my, oh my, how God has used that man from a little church. Kingdom workers like Timothy come from places like this. William Carey was a guy from a little town called Pollerpuri. England, grew up poor, learned from his dad to be a cobbler, a shoemaker, became a follower of Christ, didn't get to go to school, wasn't formally educated, but he borrowed a Greek grammar and got a hold of a Greek New Testament and began to study the Greek language. And the scriptures impressed him, and that little church mentored him and encouraged his growth. And gradually, uh, he got to the point where he was speaking sometimes to some of their gatherings, and they ordained him into the ministry. And then, at a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, William Carey stood up and he said, From my reading in Scripture, I think that we as a group of churches should commit ourselves to telling the good news of Christ in some other land. And he was interrupted by an older, more distinguished minister who said, Sit down, young man. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, He will do it without you or me. He can do it on His own. He doesn't need us. 
sounds like the guy who said, you know, I don't care about those guys in China. That's below my line. I don't care about them or the trail of tears. Their property, get rid of them. I don't care. But God's people care because we follow the God of the Scriptures, right? So in 1792, William Carey wrote this pamphlet. It became well known throughout England, an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of heathens. Translate that down. We should care. We should use our resources to help them understand. And the pamphlet argued that Christians should be passionate about people who don't know the Lord, wherever they are. And he urged the leaders of the churches to form a group that became known as the Baptist Mission Board. At its first meeting, William Carey stood up and he said, "Here's the, here's, I know it seems ridiculous. I know we shouldn't be able to do it on our own. We, we, we don't have any power. We don't have any resources. We don't have anything. But, you know, that great line of his, um, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And he did. Within a year, William Carey and his family were on a ship headed for India. He had no no contacts waiting him there. He had no travel permit to actually enter India. He had no letters of introduction. He just went. And he stayed 41 years, never returning home one time. In December uh, 1800... After being there for seven years, he finally got his first convert. Seven years for one of them. Two months later, he published the first translation of the New Testament into the Bengali language, and he continued to refine that over the years. It all came at a terrible cost to him and his family. But he's called the father of modern missions from a little village church in the countryside of England. Claude Likens grew up in a small town, in the small town of Johnsville, Ohio. It's just a crossroads. It still is today. He attended a little country church down the road in a little village called Caledonia. He graduated high school in 1943. Like almost every young man, uh, he joined the war effort in 1943. He had some choices. He enlisted in the Navy. Um, he was put on a cruiser and sent to the South Pacific. He was in Tokyo Bay the day that Japan signed the surrender papers. He heard General George MacArthur issue this request that 10,000 American missionaries returned to Japan after the war to preach Christ and help rebuild the country. About 10 years after the war, Claude had studied and he was able to return to Japan with his beautiful bride, Evelyn. In his memoirs, he wrote, I had helped to kill Japanese during the war. But now I could save some. And I thank the Lord I was able to do that. About 20 years after serving in a service in Japan, he returned to become the minister of my home church 
just up the road from where he grew up. And last week, Clyde celebrated his 98th birthday, still doing his thing. Kingdom workers are like that. They just come from these obscure places and go out and do amazing things. Brett Andrews is the son of Diane Boutre, our piano player. That makes him the brother of Linda Cronin and the brother-in-law of Casey and the uncle of Ryan who are here almost every Sunday. Brett grew up in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Guys, that's the home of where they make the channel lock pliers. Everybody's probably got some of those in their toolbox, right? Brett has been involved with planning close to 300 churches. He's had a hand in that. He's a minister of a church outside of Washington, D.C., and he told recently of a guy who was an atheist his whole life until just a couple years ago, he was convinced and he became a Christian. He became a Christian at the church where Brett is one of the ministers, New Life Church in Virginia. And that guy was convinced that other people should know what he knows. And so that guy studied and he recently recently moved to St. Augustine, Florida to plant a new church. Brett says, church planters are produced by healthy churches with a reproduction mindset. Well, that little new church at Lystra was really not in a position to give up one of their best guys, send him out. Were they? I mean, they had trained him and helped him grow. Clearly, they lived in a hard place where pagan gods were worshipped on one hand and where there was a lot of religious confusion that bordered on fanaticism on the other hand. Sending Timothy with Paul and Barnabas and a team like that made no sense. They needed him here. Except that there was a higher calling, wasn't there? God cares about people and wants them in His family. Who's going to tell them? Okay, we'll send him. So later, Paul wrote to Timothy these words in uh, the second letter of uh, Timothy. He wrote this. Uh, Paul's last days, probably. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me? In Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. I I don't have it for sure. I, I would just say it's very possible that Timothy as a young man was eyewitness to Paul being stoned, perhaps. Maybe he was standing around the crowd thinking that he was dead. Maybe his jaw dropped to the ground when he saw this guy that had cuts and marks from rocks stand up and go right back into the city. And maybe he said, what? I have a new hero. I want to be like that guy. I want to do that too. He signed up for a pretty rough ride, didn't he? Yet the church in Lystra had... This reproduction mindset. People must know what we know. We must sacrifice to make Christ known. I, I ask again, would you go with Paul? 
Moms and dads, would you send your son with Paul? Boy. It's September of uh, 1853. There's a little ship that sailed out of Liverpool, England, with a 21-year-old dreamer named Hudson Taylor on board. He was headed for China. By the time Hudson Taylor died 50 years later, China was viewed as one of the most fertile mission fields and thousands of people volunteered to go and serve there. But it wasn't always like that. Hudson Taylor was born to uh, James and Amelia Taylor, a Methodist couple who had a map, a, a, a book of maps that they somehow got and they kept showing their kids as they grew up and they prayed, God grant that one of our kids would do your work in China. As a teenager, Hudson Taylor was taught the ways of Christ. He spent the next years of preparation. He learned medicine as best he could in those days. He started to try to study Chinese language as best he could. He tried to be the best man of prayer, going deep into prayer and Bible study. Well, he went to China, and then he came home. And he came home to continue translating the Bible into Chinese. He came home to get more workers to go back with him. And knowing people in England didn't care much about China, he wrote a pamphlet called China, Its Spiritual Needs and Claims. And he formed a group called China Inland Mission. And he tried his best to cross England and recruit 24 missionaries who would go back to the inland provinces, the 11 inland provinces of China, plus two from Mongolia. Crazy. Crazy. It was a visionary plan that seemed absolutely impossible. They didn't have funds to do it. They didn't have means to get them there. They didn't have anything. Hudson Taylor writes in his journal, he was full of self-doubt. Is this my vision or is this yours, Lord? He worried about sending men and women into the interior of China without papers, without protection, without salary, without anything. Would anybody be crazy enough to do that? He cried for millions of Chinese who were waiting to hear and know what he knew. Over time, eventually, 225 missionaries comprised the China Inland Mission. And the good news of Christ still bubbles out of China today. Ah, boy. There are so many cool stories like that. Little churches producing world changers. God, make us like that. Make us like that. Joy, I'd like to invite the worship team up. and Shay, Shay, come on up as I close this. Andrew Jackson's policy was intolerance and removal of people. But the kingdom worker's mindset is that God loves people and He wants them in His family and people must know what we know about Christ. And each one of these stories tells of a little church that could. They're small, unknown. Uh, you drive right by them. Uh, from, from the outside, they look insignificant. But they have this surprising, undetected, Holy Spirit power to raise up kingdom workers who just go with the good news. Sent by a compassionate church. The little church that could, if you will. We're the little church that could. Give, giving sacrificially, 
offering big, hairy, audacious prayers, sending out workers. That's God's church. One recent survey indicated that there's about 20% of ministers in churches in America today want to just walk away from their job. And another 20% are 60 years or older and probably are going to retire shortly. And there's another survey that indicates 25% of missionaries from the United States are going to retire in the next four or five years. Where are their replacements? Who will go? Where will they come from? It's the local church, isn't it? Places like this, places like our neighboring churches in this community, country churches, city churches, suburban churches. It's the local church, the church that teaches scriptures to their young people. Churches that give their young people opportunities to, to, to grow and serve. Churches that expose people to dynamic personalities like Paul and Barnabas. Churches that pray for workers for the harvest. God help us be a church like that. God help us be a church like that.